Hello everybody and welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study. As you can tell, I'm still not back in Wisconsin. We, we'll be back Sunday afternoon, so I'll be uh, back uh, in my normal place uh, next Wednesday night. But uh, we are continuing our study from the road. Uh, we are in California. I realize it's probably dark or getting dark already over there. Uh, and as you can see, it's still light over here. <laughs> so, uh, we're uh, taping this uh, study ahead of time uh, because of all the travel and stuff that we're doing. And uh, like I said last week, every 15 minutes I have to stop. So I got to stop twice to reset the camera. For some dumb reason, it doesn't work the way that I want it to. But well, we'll get through it. Uh, and hopefully the audio is okay here. Uh, it's a nice setting. It's morning here now uh, that I'm taping this. Uh, but there's like some gigantic birds <laughs> that are just screeching loud. Especially this crow. This crow from hell flies around here every once in a while. And I hope it doesn't become a problem. Because if he shows up, he's like right there and just starts screaming at the top of his voice. I'll probably have to pause and wait for the crow to go away. So anyway, we are going to continue. We are in uh, 2 Corinthians, the uh, 7th chapter now. We just finished, obviously, the 6th chapter. For those of you new to the Bible, there's always new people coming in all the time, new to their faith. Uh, these... Uh, letters in the uh, New Testament, they're called epistles, fancy word for letters, uh, that the, uh, the apostles wrote to uh, the church uh, at that time, and what constitutes the majority of what we call our New Testament. Uh, none of the Bible is actually written in what's called chapters. Uh, the closest would be the Psalms. They had individual Psalms, which we call uh, we kind of chapterize them, but we number the Psalms, but everything else, is, it was just written straight through uh, we added chapters and verses later so you could find out where we were so everybody could get on the same page, literally the same page. So, we are in uh, 2 Corinthians, the 7th chapter now. And Paul says this, he says, Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, what promises? Remember what he just said at the end of the last chapter. He says, If you will separate yourself and be committed to me, and he basically says this, I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters. Uh, before that, he says, I'll live with them, I'll walk with them, I'll be their God, I'll be their people. When you uh, make that decision, I'm going to really, you know, serve God in my life. And I'm going to break off the old connections and uh, don't let those affect me anymore and start really living uh, in this new life. We have this uh, sense of God walking with us and being with us and uh, changing our lives and blessing our lives, which is what the whole Christian walk is about, God walking with us. Uh, we talked last week about it doesn't mean you aren't supposed to have any Christian or non-Christian friends. I mean, that's a problem for a lot of Christians. They have no non-Christian friends. <laughs> Therefore, they can't affect anybody anymore because everybody they know is in the church already. So while that's true for many of us who've been in this for a long time, the bulk of our friends will pretty much be Christians. We need to constantly be reaching out to people who are not uh, Christians and make friends with them so that we can influence them. But he warns us against being unequally yoked, which means, you know, really being way too close with unbelievers that they start to affect us negatively. Anyway, the promise is, if you'll do this, if you will start to make the source of your uh, relational world 
people of faith and walk with God. God will greatly bless you. So he says, therefore, seeing have, having these promises, let us pure our, purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reference for God. So it's the sense of trying to not be contaminated by it. Again, we just got to be careful, and I keep stressing this. It doesn't mean you're supposed to wall yourself off and become our own little version of, you know, uh, the Amish or something. They've certainly walled themselves off, but to the point that what effect do they have on anybody? <laughs> their, only, their only chance of evangelizing is <laughs> having children and, and winning them to God. So we're not talking about that kind of walling off, uh, you know. But uh, we are supposed to be able to keep the separation uh, so that we aren't contaminated. Again, you don't have to think in terms of paranoia contaminated. Oh, I can't be around non-Christian. I'll be contaminated. Oh, I heard somebody cursing today. Oh, I'm going to die. No, you'll be fine. A lot of you work around people who say and do all kinds of horrible, <laughs> terrible things. You'll be fine. It's talking about this really close connection where they start to really negatively influence you. We don't have to walk around worrying that somehow we're going to be contaminated by evil people. All right? There's people who actually think this way. There's people who, you know, they won't go into a building because, you know, something in that building happened before that might contaminate them, have all kinds of paranoias. Uh, there's Christians that won't go into, for example, a, a restaurant that serves liquor. Uh, now, in Green Bay, and Wisconsin in general, that pretty much would eliminate <laughs> all eating establishments. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in other parts of the country, you know, Bible Belt and stuff like that, there's people who are just, they're really, quite frankly, that spiritually anal that uh, they won't go into a, a restaurant that serves liquor because uh, someone might have gotten drunk and that spirit of drunkenness might contaminate them. And the Bible says we're not supposed to be contaminated. And, you know, it's not supposed to be. I remember in Stevens Point, uh, those of you who remember for a while, we were uh, uh, using the uh, movie theater. Which, quite frankly, uh, would have saved us, was saving us tons of money if we would have stayed there. Because they were charging us like, and excuse all these noises that are rumbling around here, but uh, they were charging us like $25 a week, something insane like that, to stay at that theater. It was, it was crazy. It was like $100, $200 a month. Uh, but there were many people in the Stevens Point campus, ironically, many of them not here with us anymore, that were very spiritually anal and didn't want to get contaminated. So they didn't want to come to church in a place where they had shown maybe a movie that was a nasty movie. I'm not kidding. Or they, they didn't want their kids to you know, see a poster and want to go to a movie. And stuff. So and there was enough resistance that we stopped that. And now we have our own building that costs us $5,000 a month <laughs> at a minimum. That's not including maintenance or utilities or anything else. That's just the payment. Five to six grand a month. Uh, but what are you going to do? I mean, it is what it is. If nobody's going to come to church because they don't want to go in a movie theater, then we have to do what we have to do. It's, uh, there are a lot of churches, by the way, that still meet in theaters because it saves them ridiculous amounts of money. And I'm not picking on those people, though I just mock them. <laughs> Most of them don't come to church there anymore anyway. But, uh, but that kind of thinking, you know, well, we can't go to church and worship God in a movie theater because, you know, uh, uh, Brad Pitt was on the screen last night and who knows what he said. <sighs> That's not the kind of contamination. We don't have to walk around, kind of like as the Jewish faith did, to, even to this day. And, and at this resort that we're at, 
Uh, Rosh Hashanah is going on. The place is filled with Jewish people. God bless them. Uh, with their beanies and all the, the dress and the whole thing. And, uh, but they don't have anything to do with us. They're very nice, but they walk around and they intentionally, because the, the, uh, uh, they're not being mean when they do this. I'm sure it feels, if you've ever been around a group like this, it, it can feel rather insulting. Uh, that's their culture. That's what the Old Testament taught them to do. Stay separate, don't be contaminated by, by non-Jews, which they call Gentiles and, and stuff. So anyway, that is not what Christianity is about. Christianity is we are to be around these people. We're supposed to be connected to these people. We're supposed to be friends with these people. We're supposed to influence these people. Sacrifice and serve these people so that they might come to Christ. Yet at the same time, we have to be careful not to let them contaminate us. And there's always debates about what line causes contamination. Uh, and it's a fair discussion to have. Some of you contaminate yourselves, quite frankly, by the movies you watch and the TV shows that you watch. Uh, but in all fairness, there's some shows that I watch, some of you wouldn't watch because you think it would be contaminating. I don't think it is. But some of you watch stuff that I think is horrifying. How, why you justify this is beyond my comprehension. But then we're not supposed to go around judging each other on this. We just have to let the Word of God speak to us. Be careful. Don't let things contaminate you and pull you down. Close friendship, connections to the world, the books you read, the movies you watch, the TV shows that you, you DVR every week. Uh, every Christian has to be aware, hey, I need to be watchful that I don't let some things contaminate me and pull me back uh, and, and cause me to uh, not really walk with God. Because he says what we want to do is perfect holiness out of reference for God. We want to be as committed and connected to God as conceivably possible. Uh, again, with this balancing act of not having to become Jewish or Amish or anything else where we just wall ourselves off for people. Uh, and by the way, when people challenge you about the stuff that you do allow or don't allow, movies you watch, shows you watch, you know, books you read, don't get mad, okay? Don't, you shouldn't be judging me. Just, no, 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 no. Uh, we should all, the Bible says we're supposed to provoke one another. <laughs> Uh, to love and good works, not just to provoke one another, but there's this provoking, there's this challenging. Someone should be able to come to me and say, you know, why do you, why, why are you going to that movie? That's, that's a bad movie. That's, that's uh, okay, yeah, well, I know, but I kind of overlooked it. But it, it's okay, we need, to, we need to be challenging each other without everybody getting all defensive and psycho crazy because we want to be in the situation where we are perfecting holiness uh, out of reference for God. And that's what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians the seventh chapter, the first verse. Okay, now, again, these chapters and verses were put in by some guy who thought these were good places to put it. The reality is that whole talk should have still been in the sixth chapter because it's all, everything he says there in that first verse is still connected to what he talked about in the sixth chapter. And you'll notice this. Every once in a while, some of these chapters and verses seem very odd. They'll break verses in weird spots. They'll, they'll break up chapters in strange spots. I don't know. God bless the guy, whoever did it all. But <clears throat> anyway, so now uh, we will start at verse 2, which in my opinion should have been the beginning of chapter 7, because now he changes the channel. We talked about this last week. Paul is writing this book, some of these longer ones, and you'll get a sense sometimes. All of a sudden, he kind of like this change his direction, it'll flip back another and, you know, I don't think he was having fits or anything, I just think he was probably dictating a part of this 
uh, letter, writing the part of the letter, probably stopped and did something else, came back thoughtfully and continued on and his, his thought pattern would change. Anybody who's done this knows exactly what I'm talking about. So the one thing that he's doing in this book of uh, 2 Corinthians, the second letter to the Corinthians, which without trying to confuse it terribly, is really his third. In the first letter, he said he'd written a previous letter, but nobody has that one, so we don't know. So we call the letter that we have the second letter, 1 Corinthians, and the third letter, 2 Corinthians. In, his, in 1 Corinthians that he wrote, he's just reaming them. He's just tearing them anew because they're doing all kinds of bad things. And, and, uh, and he really focused. That whole letter is about uh, what we're supposed to, you know, not do and, and the way we're supposed to behave ourselves, the way we're supposed to function, how the church is supposed to uh, conduct itself. Uh, so that, that's a lot of that. And he was really strong with them. The second letter uh, that we're reading now, much more theology, much more insights into our Christian faith, as, as you've already been seeing. But then every so often he stops and he defends himself against critics in the Corinthian church that were giving him a hard time. Uh, why that was going on, we don't know, but it was happening. Okay, so now he switches channels again now, and he goes back to this kind of appealing to them, you know, let's be at peace with each other, okay? Because there's been conflict, all right? They were acting badly. He slapped them upside the head. Some of them were still upset at him. So we, we'll pick it up here in the second uh, verse. It says, Now make room for us in our hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We've exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I've said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I've spoken to you with great frankness, and I take pride in you. I am greatly encouraged in all our troubles. My joys know, in all our troubles, my joys know no bounds. Again, appealing to them to kind of be reconciled uh, together with them after, you know, this uh, big uh, fight that we had. Okay, I need to pause the camera just for a second, <laughs> and we'll continue right after this. Okay, I'm back. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> All right, so now, uh, it's because of this camera thing that I'm using here. Um, so he continues to write to them. He says, verse 5, For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the, uh, by the not only by his coming, but also the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. All right, so now let's take a quick uh, review here of where we're at. Paul uh, is now on his third missionary journey. Earlier he had gone into Corinth, he had started the church, preached the gospel, started all these Christians, okay? When he comes back on his third missionary journey is when he hears of all these problems in the Corinth church. So he writes the second letter, which is 1 Corinthians to them, and just reams them. <laughs> A good one, okay. So now he's working his way uh, up the map, and uh, he's going back through Macedonia. He's eventually going to get back to these Corinthians. While he's up there, Titus comes. And that's when he writes 2 Corinthians. So he's basically just saying, acknowledging to him, you know, that Titus was with you and blah, 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 blah. So he actually sends this letter back 
to them before he eventually gets to the Corinth church. First and second Corinthians are, are these letters that he's actually on his way to them, particularly on the second one, but not there yet. So he's just talking about the fact that uh, Titus had now joined him. This is why I'm writing you. Uh, he told me you know, that, about your love, your sorrow, some of your sorrow, because you know there were problems and he was smacking upside the head. <clears throat> and then in verse 8 he says, Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended. Oh, man. Now this one. This one. Somebody explain to me this one. Uh, well, I can explain it myself. But what I'm talking about is churches today that are obsessed with not making people feel bad. They never want to talk about sin. They never want to address bad behavior. They never want to address all the things that Paul and much of the New Testament addressed, uh, you know, about just basic Christian morality. And their thinking is, their argument is, well, we don't want people to feel bad. We, we want to talk about grace and, and grace, everything's grace, and we grace everything on top of grace so that everything is grace, 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 grace. And you could be an axe murderer coming to these churches and uh, they wouldn't have too much of a problem. <laughs> they wouldn't want to talk about the problem with axes because they wouldn't want you to feel bad. I know it's not, it sounds like an exaggeration. I'm telling you, it's not. A lot of these churches, and I go to a lot of them, I, I think they've lost their minds on this. What is this obsession with not making people feel bad? Look what he says here. You became sorrowful as God intended. Listen to me. The only people who don't feel bad are psychopaths. Look it up. The definition of a psychopath is someone who never feels bad for anything. They can do anything. They can take a cat, put it in a microwave, cook it alive, and they'll just laugh. They never feel bad about anything. They, they hurt animals and they eventually graduate up to killing people and torturing them. And think, how can anybody do this? Because they see all that. But there's something wrong in their heads. They're a little crazy. They're called psychopaths. They feel no guilt, no remorse for anything terrible that they do. Now, I don't think Jesus wanted us to go into the world and create a bunch of psychopaths. It's like a lot of these pastors, God bless their pee-picking hearts and some of these evangelists on TV, you know, they're obsessed with just telling everybody that God loves you and you never have to feel bad about anything and all is good and da-da-da-da-da. Uh, I've had pastors who won't let me talk about even the most simple of things about porn or lust or some of these, you know, commit adultery because, well, you know, we, we don't want people to feel bad. And I just look at them like, what? <laughs> I'm just stunned. So consequently, the Christian community today in churches all over, particularly in the West, in the U.S. in particular, are filled with people who do terrible things. And the church will not confront them because they want people to feel bad. I have a friend, uh, a friend who had a friend, and I'm talking to his friend, uh, who was part, I won't mention the church, many of you know, it's one of these big mega churches around the country. I mean, you know, tens of thousands of people. And uh, he said his marriage ended because his wife was committing adultery with some other guy in the church. And she's an elder in the church, so she goes to the elders of the church, say, look, our marriage is ending, and, you know, 
I want you to know, Susan, whatever her name is, we'll say Susan, you know, is having an affair with so-so. She admits it and everything else. And, and they look at him and say, well, why are you telling us this? So, well, she's a leader in your church. You should know so that you can take her out of leadership. And he says, we're not going to do that. We're doing, you know, just, he, she might be committing adultery, but we're, we're not going to confront people about it. We don't people feel bad. I mean, it's, he's telling me this, and I'm just, circuits in my brain are snapping. What has happened to us? Look, I get it. Let me explain to you, especially a lot of you who are fairly new uh, to the Christian faith, and that's really most of our church. Let me give you a little uh, lesson of what Christianity was back, especially evangelical Christianity, when I was growing up, okay, in the church. Uh, there was a time when the goal of every pastor was to get people to the altar. They had things called altar calls. We don't do them. I'll explain to you in just a second why we don't do them. But uh, this has been, you know, you go to an evangelical, evangelistic crusade, you spend like Billy Graham type thing. You know, if you'd like to ask Jesus into your heart, I want you to stand up, I want you to come to the front. They were called altar calls. Uh, they were, these were used uh, typically uh, for people to convert to Christianity. Um, but then it, it got beyond just uh, salvation. Uh, pastors would literally try to make people feel as horrible as possible so they would come to the altar at the front of the church when they were closing out the service and they'd have these altar calls and the organist would start playing and maybe the choir would start singing you know just as I am you know whatever it is and, and they want not only non-Christians to come, they want Christians to come. If you've been sinning, you need to come and you need to uh, make right yourself right with God. Uh, and these pastors, and I know because I was raised in this generation. Now ask Pastor Lathan, he'll, t he'll tell you all about it. The, these, uh, uh, and any older Christian. These pastors literally measured the success of their ministry based on how many people came to the altar. So they would literally say everything and anything they could to make people feel as horribly as they could to get them to come to the altar. Uh, and uh, I mean, they were pros at this, man. They would take one verse in the Bible. Man, if you know you weren't coming to church every Sunday, they'd show you where in the Bible you were wrong because you should be joining together with us. And I talk about this, but not in a condemning way. These guys would just hammer people. And then as the organist plays, your heads are bowed and every eye is closed. If you know you would, hadn't been attending church, when you need you need to come forward and get right with God. And oh man, I feel bad. They get up and they come forward and they'd, you know. And so anyway, this was, believe it or not, this was the normal, evangelical, certainly Pentecostal. Uh, way of preaching, but this was a man Baptist. Everybody was like this. They hammered people to get people to the altar. If you couldn't get people to the altar, uh, you were a failure as a pastor. So, again, it's one thing to have a call for people to convert to Christianity to come forward, but they would do this to just everybody. They, want, they wanted people at the altar, tears streaming down their faces, if they were howling in, in sorrow and crying out to God and, you know, snot and everything. Man, this was a service. I mean, that was a service to them. Now, never mind the people that were coming forward, but the same people who had been coming forward for every service for the last five years. These were people who literally thought they were getting saved every Sunday. Some of you will remember what I'm talking about as you're smiling and shaking your head. They would literally, they would just make you feel so bad that every service you were basically getting saved all over again. Uh, so clearly, 
that was a little crazy and was an extreme. So here's the problem with a lot of Christian thought. When the pendulum swings to one way, we think the only way to repair it is to swing all the way to the other extreme. That's the problem I have. I always argue, okay, if there's an extreme, how about we just bring it back to the center so that we're not extreme. But consequently, because of this extremism of just making people feel terrible and condemning people, you actually felt condemned. Now, uh, there's two kinds of sorrow. There's sorrow, the Bible talks about that, leads you to repentance. You feel bad. See, I believe if you do something bad, you should feel bad. Hey, I don't think you should be a psychopath. Uh, but that leads you to repentance. I feel, oh, man, I shouldn't have done that. Father, forgive me, you know, and, and you get right with God or you apologize to people. That's normal. That's supposed to be normal. Let's not get rid of that. But then there's the condemnation kind of sorrow that you're doomed. There's nothing you can do. You're a horrible, terrible person. That you're not supposed to feel. So I get that. Sadly today, everybody thinks that any kind of sorrow is in the condemnation category. Uh, you know, I was on a, a TV interview with... Uh, James Robeson, great guy, highly esteemed everywhere. And uh, I was trying to, uh, I was promoting my, my book, uh, The Battle Over the Rules, couples that need to set rules. You can't, you can't just not have rules in a relationship. And I remember when he was first talking to me before the show started, he was really wrestling with this because he didn't think, you know, we don't want to condemn people. I said, no, I said, brother, it's not condemning people. You have to have rules. I looked at his wife, I said, you guys have rules in your marriage. She says, you're darn right we do. <laughs> so, you know. Why was he so reacting so strong to it? Even in the interview, if any of you, you see, you can watch it online. You can kind of see him giving me a hard time during the interview, but, but we'd already worked through it. Because he had been way over here. He'd been on that extreme level of just making people terrible all the time. And they use extreme rules. You know, if you played cards, it could be go fish with your kids. That was a sin because cards are connected to gambling and gambling is destroying people's lives and why are you letting cards come in here? So people would feel terrible because we shouldn't be playing cards and they'd come to the altar and cry. So when I talk about rules, he immediately went to that kind of rules. You know, you, you couldn't play cards and you couldn't have a TV in your house because some TV shows are bad, therefore you got to get rid of all TV shows. And uh, uh, So that's that was his thinking and all I was arguing was, no, no, we're not talking about that. But let's not swing to the other side. Let's not just live to this idea that everybody can just live like crazy and nobody has to be responsible for anything. This is clearly not God's plan and not the way we should be living our lives. There's a good sorrow. There's a th if you do something bad, you should feel bad. Uh, I spend time with all, I, you know, <laughs> I spend time with Christians all the time that are fornicating committing adult, I'm telling all kinds of, as I travel around the world, because they'll eventually talk to me, and they have no problem. They're just as happy as they can be, spending time. They're sweet people, nice people. Kind of, my wife and I always walk away later shaking our heads saying, what version of Christianity are these people living? I think they're living in a dangerous place. Look, at some point, we're all going to have to answer to God for our behavior. And you think all that stuff's okay? I'm telling you, it's not okay. And the Bible says it's not okay. And particularly Paul in his writing to the Corinthians, intensely pointed out that it was not okay. But why would people live that way today? Well, it used to be if you, you know, you know, were mean to your dog, you felt condemned all day long. Okay, that was too extreme. But now we have a version of Christianity. You can <laughs> fornicate your brains out. <laughs> Commit a, have sex with somebody else's wife. You could lie, cheat. Nobody feels bad about anything. And that is destructive. That is what... Now, we don't have a lot of that going... Well, 
we have some of it going on in our church, but not because of me. I'm certainly telling, you know, that you shouldn't be living that way. But uh, it's stunning to me, this version of Christianity that we have created that uh, has caused all, all this uh, insane thinking that no one should be sorrowful for anything. Paul says, I'm glad. I'm glad he got sorrowful. Why? Because it led you to repentance. You became sorrowful as God intended. And so we're not harmed in any way by us, which is the point. Just being feeling bad about it's not harmful. How's this harmful? Ugh. I gotta pause. I'll come back and discuss harmful right after this. And he's back. <laughs> okay. Harmful. You're not harmed in any way. Well, people think if you make people foul, you're sad somehow you're gonna do this irreparable harm to them and damage them. And it's like it's the politically correct culture in which we live. You can't say anything to make anybody feel bad. Man, just look at some of my posts on my, my public Facebook, because I'm always putting stupid jokes and things about the people. You know, mo the vast majority of people are laughing and they get the point and it's encouraging to them. But the people who just, they go psycho crazy and you can't say that and you hurt somebody's feelings. If I post anything about women, watch the, the comments on my Facebook. What about men? What about men? And then if I say anything about men, they'll say, what about women? What about women? Right now, I've uh, been promoting my new book, uh, Treat Him Like a Dog, uh, which should be uh, here, actually, by the time I get back. Fabulous. Uh, Treat Him Like a Dog. And, uh, and, and uh, it's encouraging, showing women how to succeed with men. Well, all the comments say, well, what about a book like men? When are you going to do a book for men like this? Like, good grief, everything to everybody has to be so balanced and you can't make people feel bad and just... And has anyone noticed the intolerance of the wounded in America today? I mean, they get mad. If somebody has an issue with something, let's say you make a, you're kidding around about one thing or the other that somehow they were wounded about, they lash out, they scream, they howl, they condemn. How can you say that? You shouldn't say that. I mean, you see this on Facebook all the time. I call it the intolerance of the uh, wounded. Wounded people who are the most intolerant people in the world because they've been wounded. No one else can ever discuss this area. No one, because somehow it had a negative effect on them. No one can ever uh, discuss this in any other way other than to sympathize for my wounds. I mean, it's just crazy. People are crazy today. And I refuse to give in to it. I just do, you know. And there's wounded people uh, who carry those chips on their shoulder. They don't stick around our church very long. They will say that we're ins I'm insensitive and cruel and everything else. It's just, no, you got a chip on your shoulder. You're not supposed to be using your wounds to demand that everybody respond to me in a certain way. Or you can only talk about certain things at a certain time because I had, you know, you, you can't make a joke about, you know, uh, a dog biting your hand. Because when I was four, a dog bit my hand, and I've been scared of dogs ever since. And I had to go to the doctor, and it was painful. Look, I'm not making fun of these people. I feel bad that you had an owie from a doggy when you were little. But it doesn't mean that I now can't talk about some people. You can't hardly challenge them or anything because they're like a mad dog and they bite you in the hand. Well, you can't talk about dogs biting in your hand because that was what happened to me. Just, oh, my goodness gracious. I just, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just, if we get to the point where everybody in America has a wound about everything so that I can't talk about anything, I, I think I'll just retire. <laughs> I'm just gonna, I'm gonna cash it in. I get it. Look, I've had wounds about things. 
I don't freak out because I don't have a chip on my shoulder about these things. I've had bad things done to me. Everybody has their little demons that chase them around and, and bad history and stuff like that. I don't overreact to every little thing. Goodness gracious, especially with me talking with couples, every time you talk about like an area like sex, there's a lot of people who have really problems in this area. And they demand that I cease and desist talking about these things because I can only talk about in constant uh, deference to their wound. And I get it. Some of them, we're talking real wounds, and this is way beyond a doggy biting your hand. I get it. But on the other hand, don't have a chip on your shoulder about it. Don't walk around uh, thinking that, you know, you have to control all conversations around you because you have this wound. You got your badge wound. I have this particular wound. It's the badge I owned, earned from this wound, and no one can discuss this area without, you know, acknowledging my hurt and stuff like that. It's just, look, I get people have wounds and hurts. And we should be sensitive, even me. And I, believe it or not, I try to be. <laughs> and it's okay once in a while, someone will challenge me, you know, could you point out, and that's great, I don't have a problem with that. My issue is with these people who, again, they are the intolerant wounded. How dare you? You can't talk about these things because this happened to me. And or I know someone who had a cousin who was related to an uncle who had a neighbor who had this problem once. And you, how dare you talk about, oh my goodness. And, and again, you. Social media, you see it all the time. The intolerant wounded who demand you can't discuss their particular area. Anyway, this whole thing. So, the reason why so many churches today have swung so far to this other extreme is because, granted, there was a lot of craziness going on that they tried to condemn people for everything. Christians had to feel bad about everything. And I get it. I don't think you should have a problem because you played go fish with your kids because I don't think you're going to turn them into gamblers in Vegas. <laughs> it's going to destroy their lives. I just don't, I don't think that connection is there. We're not going to condemn that. Just because there's a, a dirty movie shown in a movie theater uh, doesn't mean you can't go to a nice movie in a movie theater. I don't think there's an automatic connection there. Uh, I think you can have a, uh, a drink of alcohol uh, without freaking out because some people are alcoholics. I, I just, I don't do that. Listen, I'm telling this people who've left our church, and these were, a lot of these really anal, <laughs> the anal evangelical <laughs> don't like our church. I got, look, they're nice people. They are, but they are anal evangelicals. <laughs> and they left because we serve wine at our church for communion. How dare you? Why would you do that? Because that's what Jesus did. That's what the Bible says uh, they did. Yeah, but what about alcoholics? Well, I think an alcoholic knows they're an alcoholic and they can control themselves. Part of being alcoholic is you don't take any alcohol besides. We're not talking shots of Jack's, Jack Daniels here. We're talking little tiny itty bitty things of wine because it was wine. We're not going to change the Bible. See, here's the point. These guys want you to literally change what the Bible teaches because of their wound, because of their problem. Because they know someone has an issue like this. And I don't do it. I'm not going to do it. I refuse to do it. Not going to do it. Not going to do it. Won't go there. All right. So, uh, we don't get crazy about these things. On the other hand, I refuse to swing the pendulum. I'm not going to go around and telling everybody it's okay for you to lie and cheat on your spouse, to do all kinds of things, to uh, uh, lie to people, to steal stuff from stores, to uh, do things you know you shouldn't do, and I don't have to worry about it. It's all good. You know, we all live in grace. No, 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 no. I believe there are some things you should feel sorry for. And occasionally people come to me and, and I see after church, I say, man, I feel bad because I've really been blowing it in this area. Well, I don't condemn them. I don't make them come to the altar and cry and howl and weep and all this kind of stuff. I just say, 
You know, just ask God to forgive you. That's why at the end of every service, we have communion. If you hear something during a sermon or a message that touches your heart and the Holy Spirit says, hey, you shouldn't be done. You, what you did last week, the way you talked to that person, what you did was wrong. You feel bad then during communion, that's when you ask God to forgive you and, and, and set things right. We often say this prayer for everybody invite Jesus into their heart. We don't really expect you to get saved every week. That's not what we're doing. We just say that to help people feel comfortable. That's as close as we get to an altar call. Why? Because a lot of these altar calls have just gotten a little weird uh, and, you know, they get people to come forward and pronounce that they're saved because they repeat a prayer. I don't, we never pronounce people are saved. If you notice, you never hear me tell people they're saved or not saved. I don't do it. That's not my call. We preach the gospel like they preached for the last 2,000 years and you need to get right with God. We show you what the Bible says about being saved. But just because you repeat a prayer, man, I'm always bummed out whenever I see these altar calls or these pe people on the radio or TV, repeat this prayer after me. Jesus, come into my heart. I believe in you. Amen. Well, now that you're saved, I want to send you this book. Now that you're saved, you don't know that they're saved. They might have gotten saved. They might have just repeated a prayer because you told them to. Look, you know, we, we just don't do that. There are millions of people in America, I'm convinced, that think they're saved because some pastor told them they were saved. And they're no more saved than the man on the moon. There is evil and wicked <laughs> after they said that prayer as they were before. There was no transformation. You know, ah, some of it just... Granted, we can debate where the center of the pendulum is, but that's where I'm always trying to argue. Let's try to center the pendulum. Let's quit swinging the other way, the other, the other. You know, I gotta go way over here because they did that over here. And just, I, I don't like it. I try not to do it. I think I don't do it. Uh, I might push the pendulum one way or the other, but man, I, I just, let's try and live a balanced life. And part of the balanced life is you should feel bad when you do things that are bad. It is not contrary to grace. Verse 10, godly sorrow brings us to repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Well, I'm not trying to bring death. We're not trying to bring condemnation. You're doomed and there's no hope for you because you did one thing. No, there's always hope for you. You can always turn from uh, whatever it is that you did and, uh, and get right with God. Let's see if I can finish out this paragraph. Uh, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you've proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. Even though I wrote to you, I was neither on a, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted you are to us. And by all this we are encouraged. He's pointing out that even though they were pretty blown away by the letter he sent, 1 Corinthians, Again, the second letter, 1 Corinthians, and just reamed on them, it caused them to be sorrowful and they've repented. And he says, Look what the sorrow did. It brought you to a good place. You want to make sure that you're right. You want to clear the record. You want to make sure that uh, you're doing things in a, in a right and proper way. So, again, this idea that sorrow somehow has to be avoided at all costs, and we need to protect the, uh, you know, you know, join the intolerant wounded and make sure nobody ever says anything that uh, might hurt their feelings or you know don't go to church that serves wine because it's gonna cause everybody to come alcoholics no we're, we're just we're not gonna go there okay we're not gonna and we're not gonna just refuse to tell you what the Bible says about how you should live okay it's not to condemn people but if you're doing stuff that are wrong you should feel wrong I remember 
not too long ago after uh, a uh, Wednesday night Bible study. Some guy came up to me and tears down his face. He said, man, will you pray with me? I said, sure. Well, what's wrong? He said, man, I just feel so guilty. But as I always say, don't just pray for people. Ask questions. I said, well, well why do you feel guilty? What's up? <laughs> What'd you do? Well, I, I moved here and I'm, I'm living with this woman and we're having sex. And I said, oh, come on, dude. You know better than that, don't you? I know, I know. I said, why don't you just marry the girl? There's no, I, have to say, I don't understand the fornicating thing. There's no reason for fornicating. Just marry the person. Well, he says, well, I can't marry her because she's already married. <laughs> what? So he feels bad because he's living with some married woman, having sex with her. And want me to pray that he wouldn't feel bad anymore. No, I'm not going to pray you're not going to feel bad anymore. I pray that he stop. Stop it. Stop it. And as far as I know, he stopped it. Thank God. And went back to where he came from and stopped this bad behavior. Uh, we're not going to play this game. I'm not going to say, well, you know, you know, there's grace and you don't have to feel bad. And we're just going to pray for you, even though you're fornicating and committing adultery. You know, God understands. And No, 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 no. Okay, let's not make these wide swings. Let's try and be balanced. And balanced is, let's feel bad when we do things that are bad, but things that are against, that is biblically bad, not crazy stuff and trying to make people feel they got to howl and cry out to God every time they sneeze in the wrong way. All right, oh, hopefully this all made sense. <laughs> it's hard for me to gauge because I'm not talking to anybody but a camera. <laughs> the camera agrees with me. <laughs> he just stared at me the whole time. Hopefully this has made sense to you and, uh, and is effective. And uh, anyway, bless you guys. Uh, we will be with you uh, back in Wisconsin uh, next week. Anyway, can I pray with you real quick? Father, I thank you for your word. Help us to find balance in your word. Help us be balanced people uh, that lead, lead healthy, normal lives, not running around condemning people all the time, and not being little versions of psychopaths that do terrible things and never feel bad. Help us to live healthy, normal, Christian lives and live the kind of lives that will be a testimony to people around us who don't know you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. God bless you guys. See ya. Back in Wisconsin next week.